This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Bob Roundtree, and this week we have a returning guest, Dr. Amy Devaranya, who has a PhD in genetics and genomics, which she'll, she'll tell us in a minute exactly what that means. She's also the CEO and founder of Uva, which is an app and a home testing regimen that helps with fertility or infertility problems. And I think it's also fair to say she's a women's health guru, and she's going to tell us how she got to be in that position. So welcome back to the show, Amy. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, you bet. Maybe you could tell our listeners just a few tidbits about your journey and and how did you become a woman's health guru? <laughs> totally self-taught, I'll say that. Yes, yeah, so my background's heavy on the science side. As you said, I have a PhD in biomedical sciences, focusing on genetics and genomics, but I'm actually a trained data scientist and was in the industry for several years before becoming this entrepreneur that I've become. Never thought I'd be here. I'm here because I went through my own journey with infertility and it really enlightened me to just how underserved the female population was. And it forced me to really educate myself on what my body was naturally doing. So hence the term women's health guru, because I had to literally teach myself what was happening inside my body. So I remember one thing from our conversation before is that you basically said women want data. <laughs> I can almost see a protest with women holding up a sign. Women want data. Could you tell us what that means that women need data, want data, data for what? What kind of data? I mean, so you could take one step back, right? Like we're all taught to advocate for ourselves, right? When it comes to our health, it really doesn't feel right, speak up. But if that soapbox that you're standing on to advocate for yourself is built off of Google searches and Facebook comments and anecdotal advice, it's really hard to stand on that with stable ground. What if you can build that soapbox off of objective data and hormonal measurements and symptom tracking and be able to synthesize all that into something that is an actual picture of what your overall health is? Now, when you go to your doctor, you are empowered with information to have a two-way conversation and ask questions and demand answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the piece that I think has been missing. Women haven't been empowered with that information to be able to truly advocate for their own health and when things are wrong. So, you know, there's apps out there that say track your symptoms. You know, I, I eat this food and I get gut pain, right? Or I get migraines. And so, but those are all kind of superficial. You're talking about a different kind of data. You're talking about data about specific hormones. And to that end, I wonder if you could tell us in a nutshell, what goes on in a woman's menstrual cycle? You know, I, I heard from you earlier that 87% of women have irregular menstrual cycles at some point in their life, which is a huge number. It's like irregular cycles are the norm, not the abnorm. So what makes for a regular menstrual cycle? What are all the factors that feed into that? And, and what does that look like in terms of things that you measure? Sure. So a menstrual cycle, I think, is also kind of this defined by a lot of women. A menstrual cycle is a lot more than a period, right? There's a lot more that happens in a woman's menstrual cycle than just shedding your tissue every month. 
that's really just the first portion of it. There's a lot that happens. If you look at your menstrual cycle, it's really divided into two phases, follicular and luteal phase. And if you want to be very granular, you could break it up into four. The menstrual phase, the follicular phase, ovulatory, and then luteal phase. Mm -hmm. They all have their own meanings, right? Like there's different uh, things that are happening in each phase. We could dive into that. But when you're talking about a regular cycle, what does that mean? It's really about having this cyclical effect happen, like all four of those phases happening at some regular interval. Mm -hmm. That could be 40 days. It could be 20 days. It could be 28 days, whatever it may be. But it has to be at some sort of a predictable interval. That would be defined as a regular cycle. An irregular cycle is if you're having those, that cycle happens at different times every single time. How does the body know to do this, right? Is it a, you know, we have circadian clocks, all right? Uh, every cell in our body knows what time of day it is. Is it morning? Is it evening? How do certain parts of our body, whether it's the brain or the ovaries or some other tissue, how do they know that it's time to bleed? Yeah. Or I mean, you know, so there are four phases. How is that possible? What's going on? So they're driven by hormones, right? So there's critical hormones that are dictating each phase and kind of leading the body through phase after phase after phase. So we can go through what those hormones do right now, if you'd like. Sure, yeah. Well, I'm wondering, like, does the brain control those hormones or is it the other way around or both? It's a little bit of both. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. All right. So with your menstrual cycle, that's when everything is at its baseline. Your mm -hmm. body is shedding its, um, its uterine lining because you haven't gotten pregnant. If you think about a woman's body, this whole menstrual cycle is really designed for a woman to get pregnant, right? And if she doesn't, then all the lining sheds so you can reset for a possible pregnancy in the next cycle. <laughs> Once that the menstrual phase is over, she's done bleeding. Now she's in the later part of the follicular phase. At this point, her estrogen will start to go up. Now the role of the estrogen, it starts to trigger the pituitary gland in the brain to release LH. But LH doesn't come out in a stream. LH is lut luteinizing hormone. Correct. Yes. The luteinizing hormone is released in little bursts or it's a pulsatile hormone. So it comes out in little, little bursts, like at a frequency. Every time the estrogen pings the pituitary gland, you're going to get a little burst of LH. What ends up happening is your estrogen starts elevating and that signals to the pituitary gland to release more and more LH. As the LH is increasing, the ovary starts getting a signal to like, all right, it's time to release an egg. And mm -hmm. when your LH peaks, that's when the, the egg was released and that's considered ovulation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So LH is a signal that you can actually measure that says something about the readiness for ovulation. Correct. Now, once the egg is released, the egg starts to flow down the fallopian tube and enters into the uterus. Once it's there, it begins to form a corpus luteum, which is this yellowish skin wrapping around the egg. And that releases the progesterone. The purpose of that progesterone is to make that uterine lining incredibly sticky and like soft and cushiony. Mm -hmm. So if a sperm meets with that egg and an embryo is formed, that embryo can nestle into the uterine lining and then stick. And that's where you will have your baby would grow. Now, if that embryo doesn't form, what's going to happen is the corpus luteum will stop generating the progesterone and progesterone will reduce and then everything sheds. Mm -hmm. So it, it now signals that another period should start. So that's the full cycle of a menstrual cycle. Now, if you get pregnant, what's going to happen is the progesterone is going to keep on going and you're going to end up being able to support that baby and the hormones kind of pivot. There's a lot more that happens. A lot more that happens, right? Your life changes. So the estrogen goes up, then that actually, and that's the first thing that happens. That then tells the brain to make more LH and then LH feeds back and kind of ripens things, shall we say, in the ovary. And so 
if you're going to measure this, if you're going to do testing like you do at UVA, what are the choices you have in looking at these hormones to determine the health of the cycle, the readiness for ovulation, a lot of different things you could test. So why those? Currently, our product tests LH and progesterone quantitatively. So we are really focusing on that fertile window and then confirming that an egg was released that cycle. Now, what's really critical about UVA is because we're quantitative, we're able to understand what a woman's baseline levels are for those hormones because we have her start testing early in her follicular phase. She, we can then detect fluctuations in her daily levels to tell her when she's entering her ovulatory phase and when she's entering the luteal phase. So that's really important for a woman with a hormonal imbalance because she may not necessarily meet the standard curve that's in our textbooks. She may fit a very unique pattern that is unique for her, but totally normal. So Uva can learn all those nuances and actually help her achieve her fertility goal. I think I'm correct in saying this, that one of the most common causes of these irregular cycles is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. It sounds like PCOS may be overdiagnosed from talking to you. What is PCOS? Like what makes it unique in the context of these hormonal changes and how might your tests be able to determine that or support that diagnosis? Sure. So underlying PCOS is basically an imbalance of hormones. So we know that there's uh, female hormones, there's male sex hormones. Um, Estrogen and testosterone are meant to have a certain balance in women versus in men. In polycystic ovarian syndrome, what we typically find is that that imbalance is inverted. Mm. So there's more testosterone present than estrogen. So what that ends is a big like downstream effect of having that imbalance because what many women experience is elevated levels of luteinizing hormone throughout their cycle. So you can see this. You can see this in the testing. We can see this in our data. So we have women, like when you register in our, and you create an account with us, you let us know what your reproductive history is. So what we're able to do is actually segment out patients that are polycystic ovarian syndrome positive versus those that are showing signs of PCOS that actually don't have it. So it's, it's very interesting. And what we're also seeing is that women that are saying they have PCOS actually don't necessarily have to have that elevated LH. Wow. So when the app detects that, so with a little pop-up come on the app and say, this sure looks like PCOS or, well, <laughs> you know, if, if you were testing a woman and, and that signal was detected, would somebody give her a call and say, you're in this category? How, how would that woman be responded to? So we don't tell the woman that she has those signs. If she's working with a doctor, we provide an alert to the clinician letting them know like, hey, you might want to do a workup on your patient for PCOS. Mm -hmm. We actually submitted a paper to MRSI last year, which is uh, the Midwest Reproductive Symposium Conference, about looking at specific hormone patterns to determine if you should do a workup for PCOS in patients. It was really informative. I'm just wondering if a lot of cases are missed as a result of not doing the kind of testing that UVA offers. Absolutely. I mean, the, if you look at the testing that's being done right now, it's a snapshot measurement of hormones. You go in for blood work annually and you make decisions off of that. What is really needed is seeing what the trends of those hormones are over a period of time. And UVA is able to provide that. You're getting like 15 days of sequential hormonal measurements so you can really get an understanding of what your hormones are doing in a single month. Now, I'm I'm getting the impression from talking to you that you may think there's other options for women with PCOS besides metformin or oral contraceptives. What have you learned from looking at this data and then doing interventions, taking a dietary supplement, going on a particular diet? What, what are you learning that is kind of adding to our understanding about this? It's been so enlightening to see this. Like 
it's not like Western medication that's necessary to under to help get PCOS under control. Doing simple things like going for a five-minute walk after every meal has had drastic impacts on women with PCOS and getting their cycle regulated. Reducing stress levels, just moving around and digesting your food, making recommendations to add more antioxidants to their meals, giving them really good options for removing fatty foods with good fat. That's been really enormous as well. We've actually made a lot of recommendations for thorn supplements as to our patients too, and they've all had really good reactions to those as well. Let's talk a little bit about PMS. Most women, if you mention premenstrual syndrome, know what we're talking about. Some men understand it. Are you learning anything about what PMS is by doing this data tracking? Or, you know, are you seeing any particular patterns with that? Do you have any theories about what it is? So, I mean, PMS is something that I think is just a blanket term for discomfort that women feel right before a cycle starts. And it makes sense, right? Like your body was basically getting ready for a pregnancy that didn't happen. Now you're about to shed it. Like your whole body's resetting. Mm-hmm. So all your hormones are crashing because they're getting back down to baseline so you can shed that lining. Now, if you think about what that means, like your hormones are, they're present throughout your entire cycle and now they're basically becoming non, non-existent. Mm-hmm. That's going to have an impact on a woman. Every woman is experiencing it differently. What we're able to start doing with our data is we learn the symptoms that women are experiencing during certain parts of their cycle. Mm-hmm. And we start making recommendations on how to alleviate those symptoms when we start to see those hormonal patterns. So the most common one we see is women report migraines towards the end of their cycle, right? So when we start seeing that the hormonal patterns are falling in that way, we start giving them recommendations on how to improve sleep patterns, how to remove blue light from their rooms, and we make a ton of recommendations on how to adjust sleep right before those migraines are about to hit. And we've gotten positive feedback on having a good impact on their lives. Well, it turns out sleep's important. I mean, who... Who would have thought? But we, you know, we're in a society where we don't think sleep is important. And it's taken people like Matthew Walker to come out and say, you know, you actually need X number of hours a night, probably at least seven, maybe eight. You know, it seems like there's potential for combining the data you're getting from Uva with one of those sleep trackers and being able to say, hey, these two things are tracking together. Yep, absolutely. Right now, we only track sleep by uh, a woman entering it herself. But that's definitely on, our, on the horizon for us to integrate or collaborate with some of these sleep trackers. So you're learning a lot about the, quote, normal menstrual cycle and what disrupts it. What would you say are the, the primary factors that, that you're seeing uh, that are disruptive to a women's menstrual cycle? What, you know, why is this so common in our society? I think the number one thing that we see in our data is stress. So stress is something that is subjective. Right. Like if so, if you say like, what is your stress level today? Like my stress level of 10 is going to be very different from your stress level of 10. What we see is that when women are telling us that they are feeling anxiety or stress or any sort of emotion in that way, their hormonal patterns are very different than what they had the cycle before. Wow. So you can see it right there. We can see it right there. And they notice it too. So this is what I really love. Like, yes, we're seeing it in our data, but so are the women. Mm-hmm. And they're able to be like, my cycle looks really different from last cycle. What happened? oh my God, I was, work was insane this week. And this is what I'm saying about the empowerment, like letting a woman really look at her information and be like, this is what's happening with my body. I can control this. That's a very powerful thing to give that woman. You know, one thing that I've noticed in patients is that people talk about stress in this global way. And what I just heard you saying is if they go, well, my hormones changed this week, what well, is different this week? I'm feeling stressed all the time. 
right? But yeah. this week, what's different? This <laughs> week, I, I wasn't getting as much sleep. So you start to to narrow it down and go, okay, yeah, I'm always feeling stressed, but this is what's different right now. And this is something I can change. And it's really funny. And I'm sure like you probably experienced this too when you were, um, when you see patients, but like if I do these consults with our patients, I'm like, did you change anything this cycle? The first answer is no, everything was the exact same. And then I'm like, well, how was your sleep? How was work? Oh my God. Yeah, you're right. I had that deadline <laughs> and it, yeah. it all opens up. I'm like, well, it has an impact. Yeah. And I think I've heard criticisms about health trackers, sleep trackers, things like that, that oh, now people are going to get data obsessed. Right. And yeah. I'm sure you heard that feedback too. Oh, you give women all this information and they're going to go, wow, my LH is at this level today. And that people are going to get overly obsessed with that. I wonder what feedback you'd have, you know, what you'd say about that feedback, what pushback I should say you'd have for people who say this is too much data. Yeah. And I mean, you control it, right? The way that we think about it at UVA is every single piece of data that we provide to an end user has to be tied back to their health goal. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a closing of the loop. So we give you the data. We interpret it for you, but we also tell you what do you do with this next. Mm-hmm. If I don't do that, we're just giving, we're inundating you with information. That's not the goal here. How is what we're telling you today help you achieve your goal faster? So everything is very goal oriented in our platform. So we'd say actionable. It's all actionable. And I've, I've heard that word used. The reason I'm familiar with it is because genetic testing, which is another rabbit hole we can go down, you know, <laughs> a different days of people that say, boy, I do these genetic tests and it, gives me just tons. It's a data dump. It gives me tons of information. <laughs> not sure what to do because it's not actionable. And I think that's maybe the word that I would like our listeners to take home with them today is data is useful if it's actionable, if you can make changes. Exactly. Cool. Well, that's been awesome to discuss all this. I think we need to take a short break. And after that, we'll be right back to answer some questions from our listeners. Did you know that unhealthy lifestyle factors such as lack of sleep, overexposure to the sun, and an unbalanced diet can affect your body at the cellular level, leading to a lower level of NAD+, a crucial component in your cells. When your NAD level drops, it can result in many of the adverse symptoms of aging. Thankfully, nicotinamide riboside, or NR, can lend a helping hand. NR helps your body prevent the effects of early aging by boosting the body's production of NAD+. And because no two individuals are the same, Thorne offers a wide variety of NR-based formulas such as our Advanced Nutrients Multi or Thorne's very own exclusive Niacel NR formulas. See Thorne's whole lineup of NR-based formulas for boosting NAD+, when you visit Thorne.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from our community. The first question this week comes from a listener who asked, why do menstrual cycles synchronize among groups of women? That I've, I've certainly heard that for years. You know, college girls in particular that say, hey, we're 
all in the same sorority together and everybody has their period at the same time. Is it true or is that just when it happens, you notice it? I think when it happens, we notice it. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of studies looking at whether like synchrony happens and um, the literature is kind of split down the middle on there being a chance that there is something there versus not. So there's not some pheromone or other hormone we're sniffing that says time to start your period. I don't think so. But, you know, this could be a cool study to do with Uva and see if that actually is the case. It would be a great thing to study. And when we come up with biomarkers for men, maybe we can figure out whether men go into some kind of regular cycle as well, because they sure seem to. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, something is going on with men on a regular cycle. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So the next listener says, why does my cycle length change every month? And then kind of part of that is, well, how long can stress delay your period? I assume they're wondering how much of an impact is stress? Like, can it throw it off a day or two or longer? What, whatever. Well, why does your cycle length change every month? Your body is the one that's dictating everything, right? So if your hormones are, like, let's say you have stress one month, it, it can imbalance your hormones and that's going to delay you ovulating, or it could delay the luteal phase and make that a bit longer. There's so many factors that play a role here. And if you're thinking about it, it's like these little biomarkers are driving such important processes that if you knock one a little bit, like it, it's going to have a ripple effect. And that's what all these things that we do daily, you could have a very strenuous workout. You could have all of a sudden done yoga and relaxed insanely much more than you have in a long time. You could have had a tough week at work. Like there's so many things that can impact your cycle that it's hard to say why it's changing. But I think if you get in tune with your body and understand your cycle, you can start to pinpoint the different things that are causing those variations. So again, you were saying earlier that if we take this concept of stress and then we narrow it down and say, well, what does stress mean? For one person, it means less sleep. Then that can help them look at a cause and effect. Correct. And say, okay, well, now I know the big issue for me. I didn't exercise for four days in a row. That made a difference. So when we talk about stress, we've got to go, well, what stress? In what context? Like, how are you defining it? Uh, the next question is, is the number of cycles a woman will have during her life set in stone at birth? Can we predict how many cycles a particular woman is going to have? And are there a set number of eggs? There are a set number of eggs, but I think it's a little difficult to figure out the exact number of cycles that a woman's going to have. Um, because with every cycle, you actually release numerous eggs, but only one turns into a follicle, and that's what's released from the ovary. So the number of eggs shrinks as a woman grows because she's having more and more cycles, right? As she's getting older. But I think it's difficult to predict the exact number of cycles. You can definitely get a roundabout idea by thinking, okay, a, a cycle a month typical lifespan of a woman. But that, again, that probably doesn't affect or impact every single woman. Now, this is a question that's kind of related to that. So I'm going to jump to it. Can you talk about why young girls are having periods earlier and earlier compared to years ago? And I think young boys are going through puberty at an earlier age. And then a corollary of that is if a girl starts her period earlier, then does she go through menopause earlier? Are the two independent? There's no way to say that with data right now. There's very limited data on this. But what I will say is that, yes, everyone, like women, the like girls are having their periods earlier and boys are getting to puberty earlier. What's driving that? I'm not sure. I think the jury's out on that, but we're definitely seeing that in the population that everyone is kind of progressing or evolving much quicker than what we have in the past. 
And it, it could be anything from we're eating more calories, right? So we're we're just yeah. growing faster, bigger, earlier, you know, everything's happening sooner just because we, we have such an abundance of calories compared to thousands of years ago, you know, when our genes, there's a whole thing about the thrifty gene, right? That, yeah. you know, our genes are clashing with modern civilization. So it could be that, or it could be organochlorines or, you know, some other kind of toxin, but it's an open question you're saying. It is an open question. I think like you're right about the caloric intake, but the environmental factors, I think, play a huge role in this as well. And there's just not enough data to say what that impact will be. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see that for decades to come. It's going to take us a while to get to the bottom of it. What's the best age to get pregnant? The the listener says, I'm in my mid-30s. Have I waited too long? Well, you know, what's the age range that you where you generally see being optimal for getting pregnant? Well, I think first I want to tell this listener that you're not too, you didn't wait too long. Uh, I think that's actually the average that women are getting pregnant in their early to mid thirties. And what we're seeing with our UVA data, we see that I think it's 46% of our users are actually above the age of 35. And that's substantial, right? Because you would think above the age of 35, you're actually considered to have a geriatric pregnancy. Uh-huh. That's not the case because they're still cycling and they're still getting pregnant just fine. I love that geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> One of my personal goals is how do we redefine all these terms or use it to find women today? Um, because it's, it's so archaic. But it kind of goes to my next point where all the models and those curves and hormone trends that we're all taught are normal are defined based off of women in their early 20s mm. who are getting pregnant. That's just not the norm for us anymore. And you can see, like, if you look at the average age of a woman at her first, it has been progressively increasing over the past decade. So unfortunately, literature and science hasn't caught up. And I think what's really lacking right now is data to redefine what that normal woman looks like. And we're starting to collect that and and build those models. You know, it's a little like osteoporosis. I do a lot of bone scans in women in their 60s and 70s. And the standard is to compare to the density of a 20-something and go, well, your bones are thinner than a 20-year-old. And they go, no kidding. Right? (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. But it's interesting that the norm has changed that much. Yeah. You know, where oh, yeah. I mean, there's still teen pregnancies out there, obviously, but more and more women are waiting till after they've gone to college, worked a few years in a job, settling in, have a more stable home life. I don't know what all those reasons are, but something's clearly changed in our society. Mid 30s is norm, and it's it's not too long. It's not too late. It's not too long. Not at all. What are you seeing, uh, just curious, in your data in terms of all the conditions that make a woman ripe for being fertile? Are you seeing a big decline that happens in the 30s or is it all still looking good? It's looking good at that age. It's looking really good. So I'll give you a good example here. We have so many women, like I said, 46% of our users are above the age of 35. We have a good percentage of those women who tell us that they're perimenopausal. When we look at their data, it is so clear that they're still cycling. It's just irregular. Mm-hmm. And if you dig down a layer deeper, they've always had irregular cycles. They're just a little older today. So their doctor's diagnosed with perimenopause. So there's just so much that we can uncover with understanding the, the hormonal trends and personalizing it for every woman that just hasn't been done in the past. One thing I'm really getting from talking to you, a big learning for me, is the difference between data and evidence and perception. You know, we have the perception, women have the perception that they're cycling with their roommates, 
right? But maybe not if you actually look at the data. Women have the perception they get older, they're less fertile, but maybe not if you're looking at the data. So data is really going to change the whole way we think about healthcare, especially data that we can collect ourselves at home. It's going to change so many concepts and erroneous beliefs about our health. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. One final question. I spot all the time after starting birth control. I've tried pills, IUD. I'm good for a day or two and it starts again. How do I stop it? So you know, this is a bigger question of what, what's the impact of taking oral contraceptives? Is it a bad thing or a good thing? Or like, is it, what's it doing to take these things? So I'm not going to say it's bad or good, but what I will say is that we don't know what the long-term impact of these medications are. Let's break down what an oral contraceptive is. It's literally a drug that you are taking to override your natural hormone patterns to make it do something predictable. If you're on that for 10 years, 15 years, which many women are, and then you get off of it because you're ready to get pregnant, most women are not going to bounce back to whatever their normal was because they have no idea what that normal was. And if they do, after being on this medication for 15 years, you've probably adjusted what that normal is. You have to relearn what is normal for you. So I think there's a huge impact that we're not even addressing. And it's the go-to medication for a lot of clinicians to help regulate periods, or honestly, I think like avoiding pregnancy is probably the smallest reason to give someone a birth control pill today at a young age. There's so many other things that's being used for acne, trying to regulate the cycle, a variety of things. What we're seeing with our data already is that women who are jumping off of birth control, it takes them several months to figure out what their new normal is, right? The other thing I want to say is all this, like these drugs and these medications that women are being put on, it's based on very little scientific research. Oh, <laughs> oops. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like women weren't required to be in clinical trials until 1993. That means we have less than 30 years of clinical data to make any claim on how these medications are actually impacting our lives. And now if you take that number, the woman who's coming off of birth control today is probably older or right around the same age as the data that we have. So you have no idea what the long-term impact is. The implication for this listener who says, well, I'm having trouble with birth control, right? I, I can't keep my cycles regular. And even with an IUD, I'm having problems. So I think what I'm hearing you saying is that doesn't mean to, to this listener, doesn't mean something is wrong with you. Right. Right. <laughs> the fact that, you know, the, the medicine is a square peg, right? It's not fitting properly. It doesn't mean you've got a problem. And some women just don't tolerate these things, right? So I think maybe that's the take-home message is, you know, we're, if you're doing one size fits all, there are going to be some women for whom it's just not a good fit. Is that accurate or is that, or would you say just keep on trying? No, I think that's absolutely accurate. Like the, with birth control, it is very much a trial and error process. Mm -hmm. If one doesn't work, go back to your doctor, they'll give you another one. Okay, mm -hmm. if that doesn't work, we'll give you another one. The number of options for birth control is not an issue. It's what suits you. So if something's not working and you want to be on birth control or you think you need it, then there's a plethora of options to choose from. You just have to find the combination that works best for you. So if the ones that haven't worked or cause breakthrough bleeding have been an issue, then keep on trying, you would say. It doesn't mean something is wrong with that person. That's the important thing. Okay, one last thing. And this is a question that it's been asked so many times. Can you have sex during your period? I really, I mean, I used to work in family planning and I, I get asked that all the time. I mean, yes, you can have sex. It's but you just you most likely will not get pregnant by definition because yeah. you're shedding all the lining. There's nothing to fertilize. 
So it's a safe period, so to speak. It's a safe, yes, it is. It should be, yes. <laughs> should be. Great. Well, all right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, Dr. Amy Devaranya, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I've learned a lot, and I assume our listeners have as well. If our listeners want to follow more of your work or find out what you're up to, the latest research, where's the best place? So we are actually posting all of our research on our website. If you go to www.ova.life, that's O-O-V-A dot L-I-F-E, um, you can see it all there um, or follow us on social at Uva Life. Great. And it sounds like uh, there's a lot more data to come and that you're probably going to have a lot of insights. So excellent. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in again. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Health. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.